Welcome to The Black Athlete, a podcast where we put the past into the present of black sports. I'm Lewis Moore. I'm Derek White. We're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary black athletes. And welcome back to The Black Athlete. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for a Living and We Will Win the Day. You can also check out my Audible on African American athletes on Amazon. Good evening, Derek White, author of The Challenge of Blackness, as well as Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Jake Gate, the Florida A&M, and the History of Black College Football. Welcome back, Lewis Moore. No, oh, man, use my full government name. Uh, it's, good to, it's good to be back. It's, it's been about two months. I know. Uh, yeah, 2021 now, so that's good to be back. Oh man, that's good, man. We 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 had to take off for Christmas, right? We we finished strong, like in the new year, right before Christmas, and then January was uh, get your syllabi in order for the new semester, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so we are not as uh, efficient as our, our other podcasting colleagues out there in the universe who have done great work uh, in their intervening. But it's Black History Month, and that means it is our time to shine. Uh, and there's a lot happening in the sports world since we last spoke in December of 2020. Uh, and so today, tonight, what we're going to do is we're just going to do a quick rundown and talk a little bit about some of the things that have happened over the last, you know, several weeks uh, heading into the Super Bowl, which is on Sunday, featuring uh, a lot of black coordinators and a black quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, as well as uh, an all-time great Thomas Brady. Uh, and this is a really a fantastic and interesting kind of game uh, from a narrative standpoint. I hope it it turns out to be a good game from a uh, on the field, uh, but we'll get there. So let's start. Where do we want to start today? Let's start. Um, let's start with uh, let's start with a little bit of a somber note and talk a little bit about the greatness that uh, you know the kind of history that we have just lost recently and the passing of both Hank Aaron uh, a few weeks ago and last week John Cheney. Uh, basketball, former basketball coach at Temple University. So let's start with Hank Aaron. And, and really, um, there have been a lot of great discussions about his legacy. Um, what's the one thing uh, we want our listeners to know about Hank Aaron, Henry Aaron, um, as we uh, remember him and his legacy? Uh, outside of Eric Davis, the greatest baseball player ever. No, I would say that uh, I, think, I think one of the things – I brought up when I was talking months ago about Negro leagues, right? You know, the, the MLB did their whole Negro league thing. And, and one of the great, I think one of the, the great examples of how great the Negro leagues were is that, you know, Hank Herring and Willie Mays, and, and this is when they were living, were, were two of the greatest players ever, right? And they're some of the last players to play in the Negro leagues, right? And I think, I think, what Hank Aaron does is just not only with his major league career, just lets people know how great those players were who never got a chance. And I think by Hank Aaron shining throughout his, his illustrious career just shows you how Jim Crow and the gentleman's agreement worked to keep a lot of people out of history, right? Baseball history changes because there's a lot of Hank Aaron's who didn't get a chance. The other thing about Hank Aaron, and, and I, and I brought this up when I was on the, um, this app called the Twitters um, is that um, 
you know, he, we don't think about it, but he's like, he's extremely important to like race in the South. Right. And just cause, cause the way I like to tell it, um, in the hit book, we will win the day. That's also comes out on paperback. I don't really talk about Hank Aaron, but just in general and, and, and the sports in general is that those major Southern cities, right. That want to be seen as modern, whether you're talking about Atlanta, New Orleans, right. Um, Houston, mm-hmm. they do it via sport. Right. And Hank's the first really great, you know, team sport athlete to come down south. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And he's coming down south in Atlanta, right? Where where Atlanta's like it's it's modern city, but it's still Atlanta, it's down south. And and he had tremendous amount of pressure to be Hank Aaron. Not only Hank Aaron on the field hitting home runs, hoping that people will celebrate him, but Hank Aaron off the field, right? And I mm-hmm. think some of the best pieces that I read, um, you know, after his passing were talking about you know how a lot of people talk what would they say it was more about how he was being celebrated by a lot of older whites for you know for really being this guy who wasn't pushing back right mm-hmm. and who, who was always seen kind of affable and and just hank aaron um and that and that tore him up and they were you know they were talking about this in the terms of respectability politics but but hank had to that had to be his role like even when he went uh to talk to Martin Luther King at one point, talking about what, how can I get involved? And, and King's response was just be, you know, just be Hank Aaron. Right. Um, Cause that's how people saw sport. And, and I know I'm going off on tangent, but that's when I say that it's like, there's a scene in, 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 I think it's Mississippi burning. It's not a great movie. Uh, it's very Hollywood fight, right. About mm-hmm. making the FBI heroes. But there's one point that, that I always pay attention to. It's, it's, you know, it was obviously 1964, so there's no Southern team in the South unless it's the St. Louis Cardinals. And here you have it, right? This is, if you're Mississippi, you obviously know black folks, but you're, you really think you, you know them via sports in the St. Louis Cardinals. And that team had black superstars like Lou Brock, who recently passed away, mm-hmm. Bob Gibson, who recently passed away, you know, Bill White, Kurt Flood. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how a lot of people thought race relations would change, right? White people would see these athletes, whether they're on the Cardinals or in this case, the Milwaukee Braves moving to Atlanta. And there was no bigger star, right? Maybe Willie Mays, but, you know, comparatively, there's no bigger star than Hank Aaron. And I think that is who he was. And and when he hits his, you know, breaks the home run record, all the talk is about how great it is for for not only race relations, but for black Americans, right. Who had just been rooting and rooting for this guy for, for 20 years. Right. He, that was another, that was a civil rights moment for them. Right. And you could see, you see different uh, writers talking about that. And the other part, and and then I'll, I'll shut up for a second is we've done this before. We've talked about endorsements. We have to remember that, that as great as Hank Aaron was, he never got his just do until after right the prime of his career until the late 70s you know mm-hmm. finally when black athletes were starting to get a piece of that endorsement pie and and i think so part of the celebration is, uh, of hank Aaron, right when we remember is how great he was what he did for the civil rights movement but we can't forget about you know what jim crow and, and racism uh did to him and others like him mm-hmm. no i think that one of the things that uh you know i'll just say i think that you did an excellent kind of overview of the importance of, of, of Hank Aaron. I'll just say that one of the things that uh, we we celebrate uh, 
Hank Aaron's dignity, right? This is what a lot of right. sports writers were talking about as they, you know, uh, you know, uh, honored him in his passing. And I think that one of the things that we don't do enough, uh, well enough, uh, in the in, just in general, especially outside of African American history, is is to really talk about the realities of, of 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 racism in America, and that you know that he had to be dignified because America was hella racist, right? Like it's no other like. Like the kind of hate mail that he had, the kind of uh, death threats that he faced as he had, uh, as he approached uh, breaking Babe Ruth's record. There, um, uh, uh, Howard Bryant talks about in the Last Hero, um, uh, uh, his biography of of Hank Aaron. He talks about how his daughter. Uh, was who was attending Fisk had FBI protection because people were threatening to kidnap her to keep him like like that kind of thing. We need to tell that story as well, right? Like like we can't just say hold Hank Aaron up as a uh, as as this person who was dignified. We also have to hold a mirror to the ugly side of of America. Um, I, I heard in uh, another show after his passing about how he kept all the, I think Howard Bryan said this, kept all the letters, the hate mail that he got, and he would read it every periodically just to remind himself of what about true America, right? That in case he felt, you know, he was being too successful and he was very successful with Coca-Cola, uh, at, you know, talking about endorsements at the end of his career, he was very successful in business, um, uh, uh he had a BMW and he had Coke, he had Coca-Cola and he had a, a church's chicken. I think he had all kinds of uh, different kinds of uh, business um, ventures. But the thing that he always remembers is that when he had that success, he, he often had to remind himself and Howard Bryan, I think, I think beautifully talked about in, in his obituary, how it wasn't to the very end of his, like, you know, in the last decade that he finally felt like some comfort and, uh, satisfaction in his career. And I think that is really the tragedy that when we talk about dignity, that it requires uh, uh, you know, these, these tremendous black athletes in some ways to swallow trauma, to use a kind of contemporary word, right? That's traumatic to think about that you're playing a sport, they're trying to kill you. Those two guys who run on the field, those two college kids and white kids who run on the field when he hits the thing, like that, like that is one of the most scariest things to that you can witness when you know about the death threats that he was facing. And even though you know that they're just going to pat him on the back, it still makes you very angry because I know that he was uh, uh, petrified, thought, thinking that that was going to be the end uh, of his life. Um, so, yeah, I, we highly recommend uh, we're going to talk a little uh, if we're talking about books. I think we highly recommend uh, 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 Howard Bryant's biography of, of, of Hank Aaron. Uh, last hero. Can I say something real quick? Yeah, go ahead. Two, two things. One, like that dignity stuff. W- part of what it does is allow others to co- that come after him to be free, right? And so, so a Richard Allen or a Dick Allen mm-hmm. um, gets to be free, gets to be him his full self, right? And and they still hated him for that, right? And right. and by the way, he just passed away too. Or and all these guys that we celebrate in the eighties, right? Um, mm. You know, Jackson, whether it's all those guys. Right, all the our Reggie in, in the late sixties and seventies, they get to be free because you know Hank Aaron had to you know show dignity, right? And and, and Willie Mays had to be the say hey kid, right? Like that kind of policing of those personalities allows you know other people to come along and, and be their full selves. The other thing about I'll, I'll add about Howard's book is is um 
it's it's a great book and 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 I was gonna say something about no I'll just say it's rare that a black writer gets to write a book like that in sports mm-hmm. one of those like big huge doorstop biographies right mm-hmm. it's very he's one of the few ones who got to, he's got to do that right so that's when I I look at that book as and it's no knock on other people right who who mm-hmm. get to write biographies no knock on on, on white writers to get to uh, write biographies but I think part of the importance of Howard's book is that here is a, a black sports writer sitting down with this major black figure and he gets to do it right and it's not again it's not about these other writers it's that sometimes these uh, publishers don't allow that, right? Yeah. And I think that's the, they that that's part of the triumph in in that book. Yeah, it's the business, the business side of publishing. Um, let's change gears real quick and talk really quickly about John Cheney. John Cheney, for those who are unfamiliar, was the longtime uh, basketball coach at uh, Temple University. Um, he uh, was a uh, won a national championship at a historically black college, Cheney State, um, and John Cheney. Uh, built a basketball power at Temple that we, you know, it was, and I think we were, we were talking about this on, in our prep is that there's a moment that is hard for um, uh, our younger listeners who follow college basketball to fully appreciate. There was a time in which um, colleges that were city bound were really good basketball programs in the 70s and 80s, right? And so we're talking, uh, you know, Temple was amazing under John Cheney. We're talking about St. John's under Lou Cardaseca. Right. Uh, we're talking about DePaul oh. under, under Ray Meyer, right? Um, you know, and so those programs who have been struggling in the last probably, you know, two decades or even longer used to be tremendous powerhouses because they were able to recruit the cities that they were in. Uh, and 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 John Cheney was uh, of a generation of black coaches that were able to put their stamp on the game by being not just great X's and O's, not just great coaches, in-game coaches, but being great leaders of men. I talk a lot about this in my book on uh, self-plug here on uh, Jake Gaither. <laughs> On and blood, sweat, and tears about the thing that we have to measure Jake Gaither in is not simply in wins and losses, but the kinds of men that he developed. And I think that's the same kind of argument that you have to to make about John Cheney that he grew up in this in, in the segregated South. He had gone to Bethune Cookman. He talked. He played. He didn't even get a chance to play really in in you know the NBA was barely se- desegregated by the time he was coming of age. And he played in the Eastern League, um, and he really came up in a very non-traditional way. Uh, uh, and then he gets, of course, an ch- opportunity to coach at Cheney State uh, uh, in Pennsylvania. And there he was able to win uh, national titles. And so he parlayed a black – I mean, one of the things we talk about quite rarely, regularly is that how successful black coaches at HBCUs never get a chance to be a coach at – uh, at a predominantly white institution. And, and so here he is, is really one of the exceptions. Um, and so he comes in, he coaches at Cheney state from 72 to 82. And then he's at temple from 82 to 06. Uh, he won the nat, the, the division two tournament in 78, but they went to, uh, a number of final fours, uh, while he was at 
uh, Cheney State. And there was a kind of a remarkable kind of run. Um, and he was a big believer in many ways. He's the kind of the pro what we expect black coaches to be right. Like John Thompson, like Nolan Richardson in basketball, like Tubby Smith, who comes who's a, who's younger than them, but like Jake Gaither or Eddie Robinson, uh, in, in college football, that these guys were not just, uh, uh, coaches in the, of the sport, but they were also about developing black men, uh, uh, for not only the, the game, but also life. Yeah, no, no, you said it perfectly there. And, and, and I think it's the same, what the same things we said about John Thompson, when we had our, um, our John Thompson show, go, yeah. go check that out. We could just say the same things about John Chaney, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's the guy who, I mean, they grew up to be clear, they grew up differently, right? Yeah. You know, and, Thompson's career path is 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 Providence. It's the Celtics, whereas Cheney's not getting those type of opportunities. But he's still, I think that this idea that you're going to take these kids and, and and really get them a quality education. And so in the 1980s, that meant uh, you got to you you have to have that that fight on Prop 42, right? Mm-hmm. You have to have that 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 fight, right? Um, on these these about academic eligibility and and just making sure that these kids get a chance to go to school, right? Basketball is going to be that vehicle. Um, and I think we were talking this about this on, on pre-show, like in the eighties, when we talk about black college coaches, there's three major ones, you know, Tubby's going to come up. There's no knock on George Raveling and, and, and your man at, at Minnesota, uh, was it Clem? Yeah. Yeah. No knock on him, but, it, but we're talking, you know, John Cheney, we're talking John Thompson, we're talking Nolan Richardson, right. And, and, Thompson and Richardson eventually get uh, national championships. Um, but those guys were in your household at all times. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and they were, they were yelling and screaming and their teams were, were had their, you know, their coaches personalities. Um, and you don't really see that much anymore. And yeah, of course I don't, I, you know, I don't watch a lot of college basketball, but the last time I, you know, there was, I mean, I'm just talking off the top of my head. I mean, Leonard Hamilton's still there, but when we're talking about like popular, popular, black coaches is that, you know, Shaka Smart had that run at, at VCU. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if another one's come close to right. Really. You know, I don't know if you could ever get up John Thompson level, right. John Cheney level. And then Nolan's a little bit behind him, but these like, you know, I can't think of another coach today outside of Hamilton and, and Shaka Smart and they're not even at that level. Right. So these are, yeah. I mean, these were like big time college coaches and big time names, right. In the, in the industry. Um, and it's, you know, it's a sad loss and it's also sad that, you know, we joke about it a lot that, that he gets remembered for, for wanting to whoop John, John Calipari. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's how we, a lot of people remember him instead of, you know, the stuff that you, uh, discussed. Well, one of the things, and I'll say this cause I, I work at the university of Kentucky and John Calipari is our coach is that one of the things that happens is that that becomes this defining moment, but those, but those two become very good friends, uh, in the profession. There's a good article in the athletic after John Cheney's past. And it talks about how, uh, they, they became really good friends and really Cheney was helping, I think really helped John, uh, Calipari, um, uh, really understand the game about the kind of the responsibility to these kids and helping them change their life. And I think that, you know, Cal's embrace of this one and done is he sees this as an opportunity for uh, life changing money and, and he sees them as a pass through. Um, and so he's not trying to sell the same kinds of things that John Cheney was trying to sell. 
he sees this as an economic outcome and the way that he wants to do it, but he also sees this as a benefit for his players uh, and, and really, um, and that supersedes team building. So you don't see Cal, for instance, begging guys to come back so that we can win a national title next year. He's like, go get your money. And, and I think there is something to be said about that development, him developing that, that philosophy, which is very distinct from what John Chaney's trying to do, but also seeing that as part of bettering not only the player, but the player's family. And I think that that has to be a certain kind of commitment. So it always, we always try to remember that they hated each other, but they really became good friends. So there's a really good article in The Athletic about that. Um, all right. So that's, you know, we started off with those two legends, the passing of the two legends, uh, uh, in the blacks, in the black coaching world. I mean, the black sports world, excuse me. Uh, and then let's talk really quickly about coaches. We've talked about this on a number of, of podcasts. Um, uh, and we probably talked about it this time last year when Eric B did not get a coaching job. And so, so we are going to do a really quick, uh, um, uh, catch up on this and 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 the short the the too long didn't read is that uh there were seven job openings for head coach uh this year uh and only one coach uh received a one black coach received a head coaching position um uh what's his what's his name david cully david cully and david cully uh was a wide receivers coach has been coaching for 40 plus years at various teams uh years and so he is getting a final opportunity to be uh, the head coach of the Houston Texans, a team we must admit is in uh, tremendous turmoil as its franchise quarterback, uh, Deshaun Watson, has demanded a trade because he feels that the uh, ownership and general managers are, uh, for a lack of a better term, inept. And so he announced this shortly after the announcement of David Culley as the new head coach. Um you know, uh, there's not a lot to be said on this. Uh, you know, the, we talked about this, I think, last year about the Rooney rule as being, I don't know what the coaches need to do. Uh, this is less about Eric B. Enemy and, and, and really Byron Leftwich, who is also a offensive coordinator leading his team to the Super Bowl. Those kinds of, of accolades typically get you a lot of interviews for head coaching positions, uh, and that did not bear fruit for either of those. They got interviews. Uh, the enemy got interviews, but did not get a head coaching position. Uh, and I think that we saw some um, uh, some hires that are questionable. Uh, and one of the things that I thought about was most def has this this line from uh, Black on Both Sides, but you know, for us old hip hop heads, and I'm going to paraphrase where he says, you know, every time we catch up. Uh, white folks try to switch the game up, right? Like, so what you see is this, There for a number of years, black coaches were like, well, you're not offensive coordinator. You don't get the call plays. Uh, and so you can't get the job. We're looking for offensive, young, hot offensive coordinators. So, you know, the enemy left, which, uh, and a few others have gotten that opportunity. They've demonstrated to the best of their ability, leading their teams to the Super Bowl. Uh, and that yet that does not bear fruit while we see someone like Dan Campbell, who had been what a special teams coach, a tight ends coach at various times, get the job at the uh, Detroit Lions. Uh, the coach at the Philadelphia Eagles hired. He didn't even have a suit. <laughs> he didn't even think he was going to he was on vacation, didn't even think he was going to get an interview. Um and so he didn't call plays either. We saw, um, uh, you know, when you have a young quarterback, um, you typically see, uh, 
uh, you know, a, a franchise say we want a young offensive coordinator to be the coach. Um, but the Chargers, who have Justin Herbert, um, hired a defensive coordinator from uh, uh, Brandon Sa- Brandon Staley, who was a defensive coordinator at uh, the Tennessee Titans, I believe. Uh, and so uh, the Rams defensive quarter, excuse right. me. And uh, and so it's a weird, it's an interesting selection where it seems as if if you had Justin Herbert, who had a fantastic who I think was rookie offensive rookie of the year this year. If he had a fantastic season, really proved that he has got all the a lot of the traits you look for in a starting quarterback. Big arm, a lot of poise. He played better this year in the pros than he did at Oregon his senior year. Um, uh, it seems that in the past, when you had those circumstances, that automatically meant that you were going to hire the young assistant, whether it was you know Josh McDaniels or something like that. Uh, and so it's a very unique situation that now both Byron Leftwich, who I think got a very great year out of a 43-year-old Tom Brady, and Eric Bieniemy, who um, has made Matt Patrick Holmes, um, you know, has helped Patrick Mahomes achieve uh, uh, to his best capabilities. I think this is an interesting kind of hire. There's not a lot to say other than the NFL. Um, you know, I think what's going to have to happen is that someone's going to have to get the gumption to sue the NFL, just like Johnny Cochran threatened to sue, which implemented the Rooney rule in the first place. Ooh. <laughs> um, I'll say this. I'll say this. I'll say this. I'll say first, I think, you know, we talk a lot uh, about history. And I think going back to David Coley, I think just I mean, you mentioned that he'd been in the game for 40 years. And I, and I want the listeners to understand, like, when Coley decides to be a coach and get into coaching profession, there's only one black coach, head coach in in college, right? That's Jeffries at Wichita State. Mm-hmm. The other black assistants were just there to recruit, right? There's no... I mean, outside of your your guy who who wound up taking the Florida A and M job, right? Like he was Rudy Hubbard, Rudy uh, Hubbard, who who is in the college should, football Hall of Fame, by the way. I just right, who should have been hired by Ohio State, right? That's why you guys were terrible. That's why Ohio State didn't do great until <laughs> until the nineties. <laughs> but that's another story. Um, the other guys, there's no chance, right? There's eight assistants in the NFL at this time. So think about this: one one head coach in college, eight assistants in the NFL, no coordinators. The mm-hmm. other college guys are, are simply just there to recruit, right? It's a post, you know, uh, revolt of the black athlete. Oh man, we got to hire these assistant coaches. And Coley's like, no, this is what I'm going to do full time. Mm-hmm. But to me, Coley is just a symbol of what they do to these black coaches, right? This is why being me and left, which haven't been hired because this is what, what the NFL does, right? They, mm-hmm. they spin and you bring this up. They change the rules. Right. So when when Coley was coming up, when all these guys were were in the NFL coming up. Right. And, and I've looked and looked. I've done this research. Right. For, mm-hmm. for a while. So I could I could rattle off these names. But, so you know, a Jimmy Ray or a Lionel Taylor, who I'm working on the piece right now. Um, you know, those guys are even Tony Dungy. Right. Mm-hmm. When they're coming up in the late 70s, and 80s, the knock on them was, well, we get our coaches from the colleges. And so by the 1980s, about 70% of coaches are coming from college. So that means they're not bringing in the black coaches because when they say college, they don't mean HBCU. Yes. Right. They're not, they're not giving John Merritt a chance. They're not giving uh, Eddie Robinson a chance. I think the Rams brought him out in 78. Mm-hmm. 
not even an interview. It was just like, we're just bringing him out, right? They didn't even give him a legit shot. They're not giving, you know, Gaither a chance at, at any point. So, so that's what they're telling these guys. And then when they get the offensive coordinator's job, right? So, mm-hmm. so the first coordinator is Lionel Taylor, uh, 80 Rams, and then you get Jimmy Ray. And then eventually you get a young Tony Dungy as a defensive coordinator for for um the Steelers, it becomes something else, right? Like it, it becomes like, oh, we're gonna at one point in the mid 80s, they interviewed um for the Philly job, uh Don Shula's kid. Mike and Shula. that Mike Shula, that set everybody off. I think it was either for the Philly job, yeah. Because he had no right, he had <laughs> no qualifications. Here Dungey is the leading at one point uh you know defensive coordinator he's like 35 years old right and this is the kind of stuff he does so so again when coley's coming in there's no chance and and for 40 years you know he has to climb his ranks oh you're a receiver coach you're a quarterback coach and i think if you look at it they only let him be like offensive coordinator like once or twice that's like utep and then he goes into the nfl and i think you see it's like the same thing you don't get to climb these ranks and and what what stands out to me about someone who's 65 and doesn't get his first chance until he's 65 is I was reading this sports. I, I often tweeted. There's a Sports Illustrated article a couple of years ago that looks at the Washington football team when they had McVay, they had LaFleur, they had all those guys as assistant coaches, Shanahan. They're all there. Yeah. And I'm thinking, man, all those guys got gigs. Yeah. Just because they're around, right? Yeah. That Washington team that didn't even do good. Right. And 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 the articles about how these guys would hang out and create plays and it's all about these young white guys doing this and I'm like there's no guy, black guys invited to the seat at this table right a david coley has to spend more time in the game than some of these guys are alive before he gets a head coach like that's the story about david coley and i and i wish him well and i think it's great that he has lovey he has pep hamilton who eventually is going to get he's got to get his shot Right. Yeah. Pep, like I don't know why you let Pep out of San Diego. That's I'm not saying <laughs> the Chargers. Like, right. like you got the quarterback whisperer, right? Like yeah. you got the guy. And they let him out. Um, and so I think that that's what I think about when I think about David Cole. And when I think about the enemy, I think about again like guys like Lionel Taylor and Jimmy Ray. And shout out to Jimmy Ray, who's offensive coordinator at one point for uh in his career. He was one for the Chiefs, he's also for the Bucks. Um but it's these guys who who they do everything. Oh, oh, we're getting coordinators now. Like, Derek, NFL is going offense, offense, offense. Right? They're looking for these young hot geniuses. Yeah. And for some reason, a guy like Eric Bieniemy, right, who's with the best offense, the, the best, the best offense. Yes. Right. He's the architect of the best offense. Well, it's funny and because, it, yeah. like, like, I mean, so, like, this, I mean, the enemy is this specific case, right? He's a case that proves that there's something fishy happening amongst right. the ownership group, right? Because it's not, they're, they're like, you know, uh, it's Andy Reid's offense. Andy Reid's doing the stuff. He's basically just calling in the plays that Andy's calling. But the problem with that is that the other uh, former offensive coordinators under Andy Reid got head coaching jobs. They got head coaching jobs and one won a Super Bowl. And one won a Super Bowl, right? So it's not as if it, you know, that this is not like unprecedented, right? It's crazy. Like Zach Taylor is the coach of the Cincinnati Bengals, and he literally called plays for like five games in the NFL. This, and yeah, and or Dan Campbell would, I don't, was he calling plays for the Saints? No, he was, a, uh, like, he was yeah, yeah. He was a position coach, I believe. Yeah. 
Right. So it's like, but it's always, you know, it's, it's, there's always something. And I think even, even Lionel Taylor was saying this in what, 79, 80, he was like, or is 81. Like, yeah, I should be getting a shot. I'm the offensive coordinator. That's how these things work. Right. Yeah. And he, and, and he was the offensive coordinator for the Rams who, had, um, when he was the OC in, in 80, they led the team, they led the league in rushing. And he also increased the team's points per game by 20 that year. Mm-hmm. He, you know, they, they broke all the Rams records and he was done in a year and never got a shot. And that, yeah. and that's the worry for me about being, he's going to get a shot, but think about this. His shot is going to have to come after four, literally great years, right? Cause this yes. is the third year that we, this is his third year with Mahomes. Yeah. AFC championship game and they lose in overtime, right? They don't get the ball back. Right. Super Bowl, Super Bowl. And now he has to go a whole nother year. Like he has to be the architect of a dynasty. <laughs> to get right? a shot. Oh, and oh, if they falter, he's not getting a shot. If Mahomes gets hurt and yeah. he's out the game, the enemy's not getting a shot. Well, I think it's interesting. You brought up, uh, the, you know, you brought up this 1980s thing and it's funny because not funny because I, you know, I know Dave Shula. Um, I worked with him when I was at Dartmouth and Dave is, is a good, that's coach. right. He's at Dartmouth. I mean, yeah, bring that up. Yeah. He's a, he's a wide receivers coach there. And, and when he got the job, he was the youngest coach in the NFL history. He was like 32 years old. And, and I like Dave, right. And he's a really good guy and, and he does a great job coaching receivers at Dartmouth. And he's just got back into coaching after not being in for, for decades to come back and coach at his alma mater. But like the fact that like Cully is older than him. Right. That's <laughs> right? crazy. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like this is, you know, like we're talking about, he coached the Bengals in 92 to 96, like 30 years ago. Dang. Right. Dang. Like he got an opportunity 30 years before Cully did. Right. And, Dang. and, and, and so, and, you know, and, and, and Dave will admit that he had, you know, they didn't win a lot. <laughs> and when you don't win a lot, you get fired. Right. And, um, but, you know, I think that there is a, there's a, you know, because he was a Shula, he understood that. Right. And he understood that that, you know, opened doors for him in ways that Cully could never get open until 30 years later. And that's really the space, right? The space is not, you know, the, for black coaches, this is not to say that Cully will or will not be successful. I wish him the best of luck. I mean, yeah. When you get hired, most coaches in this modern era uh, are going to get fired. I mean, this is black, white, or other. This is not really, you know, this is a win game. Yeah, this is the results business, right? Um, and um, and you know, and so, but what we're also talking about is that black coaches are so undervalued that you actually may be getting um, this opportunity. The last thing I want to say really quickly is that these young white guys who keep getting these jobs are all seen as geniuses, but somehow Eric B enemy's not seen as genius. Byron Leftwich is not seen as a genius. Um, if we listen to the play call, like this is something for those listeners before, uh, before Super Bowl Sunday, if we're listening to the way that the, the announcers talk about the plays, will they give credit to Eric B enemy for calling that play? Or will that be an Andy Reid getting credit or will, Bruce Arians get credit and not Byron Leftwich. I tend to think that what happens a lot of times uh, in too many cases that black offensive coordinators don't actually get the credit that the credit gets go- give, is given to the coach. This is not the head coach by announcers. And so 
owners are 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 basically being they're like fans in some ways they're watching the same thing and they're listening to the same kinds of narratives and so they're making this and so you know the absence of black owners um uh the the fact that black folks in general across fields are not seen as geniuses right i think this is one of the the interesting kind of dynamic you know we work in academia right and like how many black geniuses get described in, in academia right um i mean this is it's a few and far between, right? And even though we know a number of them, um, but you know, a white person is often described as genius. I think this is one of the interesting things that is um, uh, that happens in the sport of professional football. So yeah, these coaches. I mean, it's a it's a disappointing season. It's a problem when the league is seventy percent black. Well, that too. And then real quick on the OC and, and geniuses, it's like I. I think there's only been 11. I tried to count like 11 ever. There's not that been, <laughs> there hasn't been a lot of black offensive coordinators, right? So we're talking uh, Lionel Taylor. We're talking Jimmy Ray, who Sherm, yeah. Sherm Lewis, Rubisky. Um, I, I was able to name them the other day to, to myself. And uh, obviously Brian Leffridge, the enemy, you know, uh, Caldwell got it. Hugh Jackson got it. Mm-hmm. One, I think, and those guys, when they were, OCs are only like one year at a time before they become like head coaches and stuff, right? So there's not just in the history of the game, there's not a lot of guys, black guys, are letting call plays in in the NFL ever. Well, Um, yeah, we gotta admit, and we gotta say this, and I want to clarify this. This is also because uh, up through the early and mid 1980s, the quarterback called the plays, right? And so it's not really until like the late 70s on some teams. Uh, and really the ad, the creation of uh, Bill Walsh's West Coast offense that we start to see like offensive coordinators uh, actually calling plays. I mean, this is, we, we, you know, we talked about black quarterbacks a number of times on the show. And one of the reasons this leadership uh, uh, that was damaging to black prospective uh, quarterbacks is they, you know, would white people follow them as leaders, but also were they seen as smart enough to call plays, right? right? Yeah, when James Harris was running with the Rams, they didn't let him call his play. Like the coach, yeah. like, yeah, I'm good. We're not gonna let you call this play. <laughs> and I, I had to deny him, right? This is a guy, right? Who, who's a uh, um, top quarterback that year, right? Goes to the Pro Bowl, Pro Bowl MVP, and everything, and they're not letting him call his play. Like I think he calls one play and winds up being like a major, um, major play. I think he got a touchdown out of it. Uh, but no, they didn't let him. They let him call his play. Here's a guy who started first game rookie year, right? Beats out John, uh, Kemp. Beats out Tom Flores, right? Starts and then when he gets to the ramp five years later, like, yeah, you're not calling this. Um, you also ran too much in that 74 team. You got James Harris, you you, you throw that ball, yeah. Um, that was, that was, that was the coach on that, Chuck Knox. Was that the coach, Chuck Knox? Yeah, 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 it's not, yeah. yeah. Chuck Knox is notorious because he was also one of the very first guys to to inhibit all his quarterbacks from calling plays, right? Like, I think he's one of the guys who sent in all the plays. Um, that's why they ran the ball all the time. As, oh as, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, man, I think that was a lot, uh, you know, the black coaching carousel, we'll see some of this, uh, you know, this again, another year, I feel like we've done this podcast for over a year now and we've, 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 we've touched on this. Um, you know, as we head to the end, we got the Super Bowl this weekend. Who you got? Get out of here. You know I'm going. You know, you know, passenger fifty seven always bet on black. You know I'm going with Patrick Mahomes, uh, and I, and I'm going for for a couple of reasons. One, that that offense is dynamic, and I think, look, I think Todd Bowles, another black coordinator, is going to have something 
uh, for the Chiefs will slow it down. And, and, and you know, having uh, what Fisher out with Achilles, that's going to be a killer, right? Yeah. But I think, you know, Mahomes will be able to get that ball out quick. And, um, and you know, Tyreek is just like the crazy thing about Tyreek Hill is, is like he's a, He's a football player with world class track speed, right? And yes. I don't think you you don't often it's not uh uh Naomi or whatever his name is, say his last name for me. Ronaldo Nehemiah. No, Nehemiah. That's not Ronaldo Nehemiah out there, right? It's not Tommy no. Smith, it's not John Carlos, it's bullet Bob Hayes, baby. I just stole your thunder. That 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 hurts you a little bit. No, it's all right. Um, you can but, all, you can read about Bullet Bob Hayes in uh, Bless Winters. Yeah, there you go. And, but it's really when I was watching that Kansas City Buffalo game, the only reason why that game was felt like it was close was because Josh Allen could move. Yeah. Um, that Chiefs blitz was getting through like the whole game, and and unless less Tom Brady plans on throwing these like quick little passes to Evans and I don't think you do that. Right. Mike, Mike Evans needs some times. I don't know what's a B going on. Gronk's not Gronk anymore. Yeah. Like I think, I think Brady's going to have a problem. I think Tyrone Matt, the honey badger is just something else out there. He's, he's playing chess out there. Um, so, so I like, I think they're going to blow him out. Oh, blow him out. Like old eighties. Oh, well, I, yeah, yeah. I feel like the advantage for the chiefs clearly is the offensive side of the ball is going to be interesting. It'd be interesting to see what Todd Bowles, defensive coordinator for the Tampa Bay Bucks dials up. I think that um, the defensive coordinator for the Kansas City Chiefs, what's his name, Mark Spagnola, um, who used to work for the he, – he, he's the guy – Brady. He beat Brady twice, right? He was the Giants, oh, D yeah. coordinate, Giants D coordinator when, they, when the Giants defeated the Patriots twice with Eli Manning. Um, and he's done really well. Like he's really held Brady in check, and he held in prime, you know, prime – Brady, not Brady and Moss, right? Was right. On this on this day, as we record, what thirteen years ago? I know because I was in the hospital because my daughter was being born, and I had to watch that Super Bowl in silence. So there, <laughs> in the hospital. Um, so yeah, no, it was. It, you know, I think he's he's figured out a lot of ways, um, and I give him a lot of credit for what he dialed up against Buffalo. He turned that prolific offense into. Um, very pedestrian uh, uh, results. And Josh Allen, who was very up and down in that game in particular, but, uh, you know, he had a great season, but he he really struggled. And they kept my man Stefan Diggs, who's a Terp, uh, in check. Um, I read something because I'm not, you know, to get all X's and O's, but I, they played big safeties. And so they walked, they played like, they played four safeties or something crazy, like three safeties uh, in that game. Uh, in addition to the, you know, the corners, um, I think they played four safeties. They played two deep and two near the line of scrimmage. Uh, and and they were able to stop the run uh, and cover up all the short passing game that really Buffalo had really used effectively all season. Um, it was a pretty good game plan. And, and they had Josh Allen confused. And so it'll be interesting to see what gets dialed up. I mean, nothing gets, you know, there's nothing that can surprise Tom Brady that he hasn't seen, right. like, right. in the game. Um, so I think it's a question of personnel, like you said. Can AB be affected with the knee? Uh, Mike Evans is the kind of receiver that needs a little time to get open, but you know can really high point the ball because he's six five or something crazy like that. Um, and you know that takes time, right? And Tom Brady, 
you know, the offensive. I mean, it's just a really interesting matchup. I think offensively, though, let me just say you brought up Tyreek Hill, uh, Travis Kelsey. I mean, the, this chief offense is is potent. And it's 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 actually pretty scary with Patrick Mahomes, I mean, which is all the more reason going back to our previous point that this Eric enemy thing is is almost unimaginable, right? Because because yeah, make- like I mean this is like a, he's got this offense humming, he's got Sammy Watkins playing, he's got uh, uh, Hardeman playing, he's got you know they getting uh, Le'Veon, they getting quality carries from Le'Veon Bell. Right. Uh, you know, they are getting uh, the young man, Williams, who who was the third string tailback. He played well last week. I mean, these are just, you know, they're all, they've got no offensive lineman that started out at the beginning of the year. They got one offensive lineman remaining from the starting and and they're still putting up like, you know, record numbers, you know, 30 points a game or something crazy. And so I just feel like, you know, that like you said, I think that they there's a lot of potential for this blowout. Um, but I think it'll be a little closer uh, than we think. So it'll be good. I think a blowout too, and then we'll get, I guess we'll get out of here. A blowout shifts, shifts that argument, right? I know a lot of, I know if you guys follow me on Twitter, I say Patrick Mahomes is the greatest quarterback ever because he is. But I think if, if, if Mahomes gets this blowout, right, and it just looks really bad, mm-hmm. um, and there's no out for Brady, right? Like old, you know, father time got him because it's not boxing, right? And I think, think when they start to have that conversation i think this game stands out and i think that's why it's a it's a it's a game changer it's 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 gonna change the narrative right like even if brady has six and mahomes has two if it's four touchdowns to one and three interceptions right if brady looks like second half green Bray brady then i think this there's a there's a shift right like like people Uh remember yeah. The recent stuff. They do. They do. I think they get they re, they are reminded by the recent thing. I think that these are two, you know, we're historians. So I think these are kind of two different questions, at least in my mind. I think that that when we're talking about Patrick Mahomes, we're talking about the potential to be one of the most dominant quarterbacks, like both physically and in terms of performance, right? I think the thing that 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 Tom Brady has shown is that he has had longevity the longest and been able to play at a high level, a high elite level, right, in terms of accuracy. Uh, and then, of course, in the playoffs, getting his team to the Super Bowl like that edge is, is going to be difficult to beat. But we're talking about just pure passing ability. Like we're talking about if Dan Marino had been successful and gone to multiple Super Bowls. Like, you know, he's that kind of passer, like, you know, with with superior numbers already. Right. Dan Marino. With I think Bills. Dan Marino with wheels. Because because right, Pat, yeah. Patrick Mahomes is deceptively fast. I'll, I'll just say that. And he doesn't uh, look like he, move, he can move. So I think that, you know, he's in that, you know, when we think about passers and I think people who, who study NFL history a little closer than we do, like, they, you know, they, they've got winners. They've got passers. They've got leaders. They've got, you know, quarterbacks can be a number of different things. Um you know, and I think Patrick Mahomes has a set of physical skills that we've only seen uh, a handful of times. Um, and he's been able to pair it with on the field success as well as he doesn't make a lot of mistakes. Right. So he's not the gunslayer like Brett Favre. He's got that kind of arm, but he doesn't do that. Like I can I can get it in there, even though there are three guys right there, <laughs> you know. like, um, And so in some ways, he's got a lot of that Brett Favre 
in him. But if he took care of the football, if Brett Favre took care of the football a little better. And I think that that's just, you know, it's a fantastic thing. And I think you're right. Like, this is going to be the turn the corner. This will be three consecutive years. And the question is, can they put, you know, I don't know if anybody's going to be able to match Tom Brady's longevity. That's just been truly amazing. Yes. Yeah. Steroids. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Don't sue me. <laughs> allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. That's uh, pets. He's not putting his body what I put in my body. I'll just say that. So, they were- yeah. No, no, he's, I mean, whatever it is, man, it is, I, I'm amazed that he's like two years younger than me. And I'm like, oh, yeah. He yeah. looks younger now than when he came in. And I know part of that is, you know, he's certain. Maybe there's surgery going on. It's some of its diet. I don't know. It's, I mean, he's doing that A-Rod aging clinic. Um, <laughs> but anyway, anyway, before I get in trouble, I think this should be it. Man. Yeah. I think you got to go. Before we get fined. Um, we get fined. I will say this. I don't know if anybody saw this in the uh, – there was a photo in the playoffs two weeks ago that showed Tom Brady next to George Blanda. Who were like, oh yeah, yeah, and I was like, George Blanda looks like he's like seventy years old. They were like literally like a month apart in age. That's crazy, yeah. <laughs> uh, and Tom Brady looked like he was like twenty five. I do think you're right about that. I don't know. I think the seventies age us differently. Uh, yeah, great as a nation. Um, but yeah, let's wrap it up, and we'll pick it up next week on the other side and see if our predictions hold true. Yeah. All right. Peace.